Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lumumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Whenever I read an advanced reader's copy of Life on the Mississippi, I was delighted to um, pull this one for uh, the panel at the book festival and delighted to get a chance to read it before it came out. It's one of my favorite types of books, which is a nonfiction work that's a real page turner. And it Uh really uh, was just a a whole lot of fun to read. It's a story that you don't necessarily think about. Obviously, nobody really did think about it until you decided that there was a book there. But basically what you do is is you look at this overlooked era of U.S. history that's the flatboat era. Right. Tell us a little bit about how, you know, how you came to realize that there was a, a book there. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I'm naturally attracted to, because I've studied and worked in history all my life, is the number of things out there that are important to know about our past and that the official historian department doesn't doesn't talk about and and let's be honest about it there's a lot of the the way history is dominated by a few big university professors and so forth a few textbook writers so and and things like the fact that all the founding fathers had huge investments in western land and that that was a big motivation for them and benjamin franklin spent uh almost western land at the time not being oregon california washington but being being um, all the land west of the Alleghenies. Right. Washington died with 88,000 acres you know, yeah. uh, of ownership, which was really the measure of wealth in those days. So it's, or, or Andrew Jackson, and, and what a questionable president he was in many ways. Yeah. Um, we, we're not taught that. We're taught the official uh, coda handed down by Richard Hofstadter or Arthur M. Sussinger Jr. So when I learned that the flatboat era had occurred essentially 50 years before the pioneers crossing the plains. Right. That that 3 million Americans had gone into what was then called the West, down the Ohio and the Mississippi rivers. I thought that this was a pretty important uh, piece of information for people, because if you transfer your knowledge and understanding of America's origins from the dusty plains Mm -hmm. to the wilderness rivers, it's bound to bring you to a new place, a new understanding of history. So I built a flatboat and went down 2,000 miles from <laughs> to New Orleans. You know, and, you As know, one might do, yeah. <laughs> well, just consider that, though, Chris. What if I'd driven that in a car? Yeah. You know, it would have been a completely different experience. And not to criticize my fellow nonfiction authors, but that's what they often do. They get in the car and drive it. And my Oregon Trail book and now the Mississippi book, if you actually travel the space the way they did in those days, it's going to lead to a lot more revelations yeah. and a lot more understanding. For instance, going down the rivers, practically everywhere I stopped after Paducah, Kentucky, was a sign, a National Park Service sign for the Trail of Tears. Mm-hmm. Okay, And I started saying, maybe I should pay a little bit more attention to the Trail of Tears, which, by the way, when I was in high school and college back in the late 60s and 70s, was not taught. Yeah. So that's how I came to the experience. And 
I have a, a bias, which is maybe they didn't teach us the real history. And number two, a penchant for going out and learning that myself. And one of the things that happens is you get into these little towns like Golconda, Illinois, or Paducah, or uh, Tiptonville, yeah. Tennessee, or Natchez, and you go to the local library or the local genealogy room or whatever it is, many of which are very well maintained because people come from all over the country to try and look up their past. And you find these amazing narratives in there that have never been published. And so you you start to learn a new history and then you you make sure you double check that with all the big reference books and stuff. So, right. you know, so so that was my interest. America had a riverine frontier. Yeah. And it was it was more populous and more crowded than the dusty plains. Isn't that significant? Let's write about the flatboat era. And for so many folks, our awareness of flatboats at all comes from a single painting. Yes. George Caleb Bingham. And 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 actually, I would say our awareness should come from the whole Bingham opus because he had many other flatboats. Uh, you know, lighting a uh, lighting a steamer on the Missouri is one of the most famous paintings, and I think it's in the White House now. And that got me to the whole conception, which became very important during the trip when I knew I was probably going to have to run aground at some point. That running aground was a very common event, and they got the boats off. You know, yeah. yeah. And when I was going down the river, they were all going, "You run aground, you're done for." The Coast Guard will tow your boat away, and your trip's over. You know, which happened to be completely inaccurate information. Right. Well, sort of like the first time most of us walk past a small airplane, we're struck by how big it is. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about, I mean, what what size could the early flatboats be and what size did yours wind up being? Okay. So the average flatboat at the beginning of the era, when it was mainly pioneers. Which was really 1780s into 1840s. Okay, basically the flatboat era lasted from the end of the American Revolution in uh, 1783, I believe it was, to the Civil War. Yeah. But there were still flatboats going down the river right into the turn of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, the average flatboat in those days was 40 to 60 feet and was basically run by kind of a small operator, a farmer carrying all his farm down. A lot of times he was a Revolutionary War veteran who was given land on the frontier in return for his service because the American government at first couldn't pay him. And then it it became people like I write about Jacob Yoder in the book who were just um, individual guys who were farmers somewhere. And they realized, well, if I if I take down 100 barrels of uh, apples or 100 barrels of salted pork, I can sell it down below and make a lot of money. And by the 1820s, these 40 to 60 foot boats had become 100, 120 feet Leviathans. Yeah. And these things, they they could carry a ton per linear foot. So you're talking about 100 tons of milled wheat or grain or pelts or whatever moving down a river. And a lot of times, a, a whole town would combine together and lash five or six of these together. So 500 tons of product going down the river and that, and it was a totally spontaneous movement. The government never organized it. There right. wasn't any subsidies. And it was that activity by common man 
that created America as an export power. By the time the Civil War came around, we were exporting huge amounts of lumber, gunpowder, corn whiskey, and sugar. Uh, and of course, you know, cotton. Cotton was king. And most of the cotton reached New Orleans or other ports like Charleston on the rivers. Yeah. And, and you see these steamboats, and, and then the, st- the flatboat evolved into the st- steamboat. And you see these gorgeous pictures of steamboats when photography first started coming in 1850, 1860, with 2,000 bales mm-hmm. of cotton on it, each bale weighing about 500 pounds. So it was a huge economic uh, explosion. And as I say in the book, America, Americans proved very adept at merging adventure and economy. And, and you see it even today, you know, like Steve Jobs and Zuckerberg and all those, we're going to change the world, you know. That's bold. You're going to change your bank account, buddy. But <laughs> but there's something there. It's something very American. Let's make economic growth and adventure. And, and that's and what the flatboat era was all about. Yeah. And let's do it with what we have at hand, which for those folks was an abundance of timber, of lumber. And yeah. so they, and they sold, had to they know how to put together a boat themselves. They might improve every year the homemade design on it and then mm-hmm. um they they'd float it all down river and what would happen to the to the flight boat once they made it to new Orleans? they took it apart and sold it for salvage lumber yeah there are, there are houses in natchez mississippi st francisville baton rouge new orleans that are absolutely were made from flatboats. they call them barge boards and yeah. so about 50 it's estimated that about 15 percent of the profits from a flatboat trip came from selling the boat as salvage lumber once they got down there. That's yeah. I mean, that, that, that's huge. a huge part of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the drive of the people, you know, Abraham Lincoln took two flatboat trips down the river as a young man, as an 18 year old and a 21 year old. And then when he was done, he took a, uh, a steamboat. There was only steamboat service in those days up to Natchez, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And then he walked home, walked home on the Natchez trace. Right. And 400 miles, well, to, to, to where his home was, was almost 500 miles. The drive that people had, uh, the dreams that the young had, the kids today, you know, dream of, you know, let's work at this <laughs> in an air-conditioned room. <laughs> and the dream, as I quote some, some poets and, and uh, historians in the book, the dream of every Rivertown boy in those days was to, and you can read it in Adventures of Tom Sawyer or Huck Finn, was to live the life of a river man and and you get on a boat and first trip you might just work the deck and work the ropes around and stuff but as you got more older and mature you you might actually become a captain of one of these yeah um so the book is is filled with um i mean it's travelogue it's also got lots of natural history lots of local history it's also got a whole lot of humor and most of that comes from the cast of characters that uh sort of come in and out along with you and i guess uh it sort of starts with john cooper the the tennessee fellow who you hire to to build a boat and you build with him uh he's a character (laughs) yeah yeah and you know 
he built me a boat that got me to New Orleans, so that's fine. But it was kind of a rough hewn boat, and there were some defects with it and stuff. And you know, I'd say, "Well, John, why don't we fix this? Why don't we do this?" And it's, well, we're not building this for the Queen of England, you know. And <laughs> and so the doors didn't fit, and there were all kinds of problems. But that's what a story like mine is about, because nobody, right. there's no template out there. There's no summer course you can go to and hey, build your own flatboat and sail 2,000 miles to New Orleans. You know, right. nobody knows. So you're going down the river and there were a lot of people saying, you're going you're gonna to sink, you're going to hit these whirlpools, you're going to hit these boils. The tugboats are going to run you over and everything. And I think the reason you found it a page turner is that it's like, as you're falling asleep at night, just having finished another chapter, you're going like, when I wake up in the morning and read the next chapter, is this guy going to be alive? You know, yeah, yeah. it was a lot of challenge and there's no private boating, essentially, except around major cities. I saw four private boats between Cairo, Illinois and New Orleans over a thousand miles on the Mississippi. I saw four private boats. This is not something that's done. And a lot of people didn't expect us to get there. And yes, as you're going along, you pick up a lot of characters, you know, the deputy sheriff in southern Indiana. What kind of weapons you guys carrying? What kind of weapons? You got? <laughs> and you go, well, we don't carry weapons. And he says, well, you better watch out because those kids My are going to come screaming down yeah. the ghettos, yeah. and they're going to swamp your boat and kill you. You know. And then we get down to Baton Rouge, and the black kids come out to sell us fish or marijuana, whatever you wanted. You know. And they go, what kind of heat is you carrying? Where, where are your heaters? And I go, well, you don't need heat on it boat in Mississippi in the summer. They go, no, man, you're the dumbest white guy I ever met. You know, uh, you know, I'm talking about heat, ammunition. What's that? And his version of the truth. And we had no problem with any of the black kids, sure. any of the ghettos all the way down. They couldn't have been nicer. And then we get down there to Baton Rouge and the kids go like, well, you're just about to enter Cajun country. And them Cajuns are going to come storming out of the swamps and you know, sink your boat and kill you, you know, and, and it never happened. So when you expose yourself to a trip like this, what you do is you learn about your country yeah. and the solution to these two, two very different people is, you know, America, get a gun. Right. You know? Yeah. And then as you go further down the river and you contemplate this, cause it's also very beautiful and creates romantic thoughts and deep thoughts and stuff. You realize it's not about guns. It that the guns are just the outcome. It's about fear. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a culture where people fear each other, and and both of them are saying things about each other that aren't true. You know, so you wind up starting the the bones of the boat there in Tennessee, then you get it up um, via a hilarious overland trip to yeah, eleven flat or no, eighteen flat tires. I think it took <laughs> to get us there. <laughs> <laughs> you put in the Monongahela. Yeah. Finish it up there. And uh and then you you start heading down with your with your crew. Uh originally John Cooper's gonna sort of be there for a few days to help you learn right. how to navigate and do it, but he suggests uh instead when it looks like he and his wife aren't gonna really be able to uh Scott Mandrell to be your yeah. river guide. And so it's it's you two. It's Danny Kojulov. Is that yeah? Danny Kojulov. Sort of, 
who's sort of your right-hand man in, in many ways throughout the, the remainder of the trip. And y'all pick up a couple of other folks. Barry Voucher, I guess, uh, is yeah. really helpful for you on those first steps. And off you go. Yeah. And it was exactly like I quoted some of the flatboat men from the 19th century. It was a crazy mix of people. Yes. And somehow you had to make it work with this diverse, diverse crew of some of them crazy, some of them not so crazy, but whatever. You all had to get along and make make this happen. And it was a joint venture. But even though you were all going to wind up on the same river, go in the same direction, uh, you yeah. had different ideas about stuff. You had uh, you had folks who were wearing period dress or something yeah. like period dress and and were interested in an experience that touched on that part of it. Mm-hmm. You're the whole period dress was crazy because, yeah, <laughs> well, you know, I, I talk about Scott Mandrell changing three or four times a day so he could have some different period dress. But it's very relevant today because we just had this January 6th insurrection. Yeah. You know, and they wear costumes. Well, they all a lot of them wore costumes in there. Yeah. And there are people out there. This is the problem with reenacting. They think you can put on a tricorner hat or a Civil War veterans uniform. And that changes you and that makes you a patriot. Yeah. No, it doesn't at all. It might make you someone who's more uh, obsessed with uniform wearing. Yeah. And you should be obsessed with, well, what was the nature of this war and why did we fight it? Yeah. And, yeah. and was it a terrible tragedy? And unnecessary and all of those things from our our past uh are very relevant today given what's happening to the country so the reenactors and i get into this in the book the reenactors bother me because they think it's just a case of putting something on period dress and assuming the haberdashery yeah of somebody who lived before you well now that's it's it's a lot deeper than that not to mention and I've spent a lot of time with reenactors now over the years because I'm always taking off on these kind of trips. Yeah. And it's 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 an odd bunch of people. I mean, you know, <laughs> a, a guy, you know, humming plumbing and heating contractor in some little town in Illinois just can't wait to the hottest weekend of the year to run off to Gettysburg in a wool uniform and play dead on a battlefield. Yeah, right. Practice bloating. And, uh, yeah, practice bloating, or you know, they they carry these little mud packs and, you know, and <laughs> just, I mean, just think of the mentality of somebody like that, you know. And the, the character of the river as you go down yes. changes. And, yes. uh, and I thought that was really one of the, the great parts of the book, how uh, you are seeing the interior of the United States, how part of it is, wilderness and 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 birds and and animals and and then other times you're going right beside uh uh downtown a vibrant downtown uh mm-hmm. other boats um what sort of speed contrast of america like contrast of america are extraordinary because yeah. i didn't expect along the ohio river to go through hundreds of miles of national forest right and then you come around the bend and there's an area where there's been a lot of strip mining for gravel and and uh, sand and that kind of thing, all of which gets sent down the river because it's needed to make cement to build buildings somewhere. Yeah. And that area, 
the barge companies that just polluted it, you know, the barge rusts out, they just leave it there. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> this gorgeous contrast of America, which is a land of almost infinite and beautiful resources broken up by stretches of the river that are just basically a Superfund site right. um, was, was a really important insight because that is the country we live in. And to sail these rivers, you see it. Yeah. And you were not just floating. You had a, a motor on yours, but you were going pretty at, at pretty moderate speeds at best. Moderate speeds, there. yeah. 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 Well, the motor, I'll make this quick, but the motor is necessary because on the Ohio <laughs> River now, there's 20 dams on the Ohio River. Right. And what they do is they, they run the section between the dam as what they call a managed pool. They mm-hmm. want to keep the water level and the currents consistent so that the tugboats pushing barges can get through the America, you know, almost 50% of the American economy exits the country along the Mississippi river. So um, in, in the, in the form of corn and, and grains and petroleum products and, and so forth, they want that managed for the commercial uh, uh, carriers. And that means that the river is very still and doesn't flow as fast. So you need a motor to get down. Whereas in the old days, they just, now then you get to the Mississippi and all of a sudden you got, th- there aren't dams. There are wing dams and uh, revetments and all the things that are before levees that channel the water and make it go faster so that the boats can get down faster. But that makes it very dangerous and difficult. And you need a motor nowadays to maneuver out of the way of uh, the big, the big barges. So the character of the river is different and it required a different power source in our case. Yeah. And, and most nights y'all would sleep on the boat. Oh, it was very romantic. You know, we'd pull in somewhere. Sometimes it would just be an Island in the middle, uh, like, you know, Jackson Island from Huckleberry Finn. Yeah. And sometimes it would be a small town or a big town. And the wonderful discovery for me going down the rivers was there are just so many spectacularly beautiful river towns full of history and interesting people and beautiful, beautiful architecture. Um, You know, from afar, this gorgeous little town of Lawrenceburg, Indiana or Newburgh looks like a a Fabergé egg, you know, it's just so exquisite. And then on the Mississippi, you have such gems as, as St. Francisville and Natchez. Yeah. Natchez is just a gorgeous town. Uh, Vicksburg also. So um, you saw all the contrasts and beauty of America. Yeah. And and in addition to the changing view every day, it seemed like every day was an opportunity for you to learn or hone a new skill, whether that was yeah. tying up, you know, whether it was, uh, maneuvering through the locks and dams. Um, I mean, it, it, it really seemed like, well, um, just about every I'll give day. you one little example of that. There are stretches because the Mississippi river is maintained by the Corps of engineers and the coast guard for commercial traffic. There are 500 mile stretches where there's no fuel, yeah. no fuel on the riverbanks. And everyone said, you can't get there. You're not going to get there. You're going to run out of gas. And, you know? So I bought this electric bike. Yeah. Know? And the electric bike is what made the trip. And we land somewhere and tie up to a tree and get everything all set for the currents. And then 
Danny Cortulo would insist on running into town for food that he wanted to cook and, and guests. And we bought the cargo model of the electric bike and we'd get that thing over the levee and push through the woods. And then you just look there and it's now evening, you know, and there's a glow in the sky. And what the glow in the sky is, the local Dairy Queen with all the teenagers parked there uh, for the night, you know, having yeah. their social event. Yeah. And you just, and some, you know, sometimes you'd use a little GPS, but you didn't really have to. You just head for that glow in the sky. And usually close to the Dairy Queen is a gas station. And we get our gas. Now, everybody said, you can't make this trip and you're going to die because you're going to run out of gas. And then you're going to be drifting on the river, be run over by the barges. Well, an addition as simple and serendipitous as an electric bike that I saw in Franklin, Tennessee. And I said, boy, I think that's going to work really good on the boat. Mm -hmm. Changed the nature of the trip and made it possible for us to make it. So, yes, to answer your question, you learn something new every day. Yeah. And anchors, the anchors that, that John Coover made for me were <laughs> worthless. So, so I stopped in this great town called New Madrid, Missouri. Yeah. And I had the local farmers. I had a conception for, I was pretty sure I could make a better anchor out of uh, disc arrows, yeah. you know, the farm implement. And I found a welder and I found a bunch of disc arrows and we, and the anchor worked great. It was really great. So I learned something every day. I mean, I, I, you know, Graduate of college, London School of Economics and everything. I didn't grow up to learn how to design and weld anchors, but that's what I had to do to get down the river. Yeah. I mean, there's a joke in uh, the rural North Mississippi where I grew up that, you know, PhD stands for post hole digger. I mean, that's where we are. Post hole digger. Yeah. 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 And, and that's my, my brother Nick says about me. He says, well, you know, the problem with you is you think with your brain and you need to be thinking with a wrench, you know, <laughs> and 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 so the trip was kind of a was very romantic, but it was also kind of a, a personal emergence for me. Yeah, because I had to learn all these things. Well, but Rager, I think that comes through. I think that that some of the the best parts of the book are where you get to use both your hands and your head, where you are learning how to read the um, the lines that the toes are going to be pushing and and I mean the tugboat's gonna be pushing and yeah. and yeah. figuring out how to be respectful of these giants of the waterways, but to um to carry out your mission as well to get safely to get you and your crew safely to New Orleans. And it was it was almost every day. Like the boat builder didn't want to put a compass on the boat. He said, what do you need a compass for? You're on a river. Well it turns out I really needed a compass bed because I had to keep a consistent heading if we ran into thunderstorms. But second of all, when I tied up at night in these very heavy currents, I wanted to make sure, I wanted to wake up in the middle of the night and walk over there and look at that compass, which had a lit binnacle on it, it had like an automatic light on it. Um, yeah. And if I went to sleep and my heading was 120 when I tied up the boat, I wanted to come up three or four hours later after the wind had changed or maybe they let some water out of the dams and, and it still had to be one, two, zero because yeah. uh, that meant that my lines were holding. And so th there were things like that. A again, it, you, you're, you're absolutely correct. It was an education every day about little things. You know, how many, how many gin and tonics do you need at night to, <laughs> to uh, get you to sleep after you've just broken your ribs for the second time? You know. Yeah, yeah, that was that was rough as well. Well, um, and and you didn't necessarily rely on them, but you encounter throughout the book 
uh, the kindness of strangers at every point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Places like Brandenburg, Kentucky. I met a guy who'd spent his whole life. Well, he actually ended up with a very good job at, uh, at Fort Knox as an engineering draftsman. But he'd grown up on the river. He put himself through college working on a tugboat. Oh, yeah. The then, wharf geezer. Yeah. Yeah. The wharf, the, the river rat. Yeah. And even even after he had all these great jobs as an older man, middle aged man, he worked on the river boats evenings and weekends yeah. just because he was so addicted to the river. And a lot of them were the, the steamboats that come up the river and uh, carry tourists and that kind of thing. But he was able to tell me, well, you know, the next stretch you're going through, the buoys are all in the wrong place and this, that, and the other thing. And I listened to him. And the, the most important thing he taught me, and there were many examples of this on the trip, but the most important thing he taught me was when you see a string of barges moving up river, look exactly where they went. Which pylon did they go through on the bridge? Where did they go here? Where did they go here? And then sketch it on your map and follow that course. And it became automatic after a while. And I didn't have to sketch it anymore. I just memorized it. But if you stay on right where that is, th those barges are, you're not going to get stuck because that's a professional tugboat right. captain pushing him up there and he knows where the best water is. And so, uh, you know, you just, you, you just listen to people, you know, and then other times, but that was tricky because sometimes you, you had to learn not to listen to people because they said, you know, if you go through one of them whirlpools on a river, you know, it's going <laughs> to suck your boat in, turn it upside down. And you better prepare your family because you're going to come back up to the surface. You're not even going to have your underwear on, right. you know, <laughs> you know, my poor underwear, you know, like, oh, Jesus, you know, Jesus, what's going to happen? Right. You know, and it was all bull, you know, yeah. and it turned out the first big whirlpool I hit, I had to go right through it because I was pinned on either side, not pinned, but I had on either side tugboat traffic and I couldn't. And I went through the whirlpool and I go, what happened there? Am I yeah. Houdini or something? You yeah. Know? yeah. And it turned out and, and because Almost everybody who lives in the river towns has lost family members on tugboat accidents or they've lost family members or their homes or their whole town even because of the flooding. And there's been massive flooding on the Mississippi all along. Yeah. Um, there's a fear of the river. You meet, you meet people who lived on the river their entire lives. They go fishing and everything. They can't swim because they're discouraged. There's a culture of fear on the river. Yeah. And so I had to be, get pretty good at discriminating between the advice that was useful to me and the advice that was just a myth. Yeah. The tugboat operators really seem to be some of the best friends that you could ask for. Yeah. You realized it seemed like early on that they needed to be cultivated. And yeah. in some ways, it seemed like the smartest thing you may have done the whole trip was to put that big U.S. flag on top of the boat. Yeah. 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 If, if when in Rome lives, the Romans do. So if you're going to sail down through Mississippi, the only better flag I could have had on in a couple of those states was, was a Confederate flag, Yeah, you know, yep. but I wasn't going to put that out, but no. And the other thing that happened with the captains, the captains are very used to private boaters who do crazy things like, you know, they're pulling their kids in a houseboat on a little rubber raft and, and they yeah. pull right in front of the barge string. The tugboat captain can't see him. And he's terrified of running over them. But what happened to me, I got lucky fairly early in the trip was there was a sailboat adrift in the current and I could hear a tug coming around the bend, but I couldn't see him yet. And I could tell from the radio static that there was, but he was listening and he heard the police reports 
of this sailboat adrift, and he he needed to know how to navigate after he got through the bend. So I just sat there and idled and communicated with him. And, and I didn't know it at the time, but one of the things I learned later was that these tugboat captains, they all talk to each other. Right. They have internet uh, strings and talk on cell phone and stuff. So a couple of times later down, as I was coming down the river, you know, this captain would come on and go, what's that big old warden flying in our middle? What's he doing? <laughs> and the other captain would come on and say, no, we know this boat. He's good. Don't worry. If he says he's going to be on a red buoys on the Kentucky side, that's where he's going to be. Yeah. Don't worry. You know, <laughs> and, and I got to new Orleans and, uh, I met a bunch of these tugboat captains, you know, uh, you know, because they end up there or they live there or whatever. But I met a few in, in a couple of, you know, little restaurants and stuff. Yeah. And they, they said, you know, for a gold down Yankee, you're pretty good. I, you're all right. You know? And so, so it was great. So the word got around that we, we were safe. And because a lot of the private boats they see on the river are not safe. And it was very gratifying. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I've got to say the last run down into New Orleans is the most terrifying part of the book. Oh I mean, my god. It's just it's almost a nightmare. It really does read almost like a nightmare. If you um, if you stand on the shoreline say 50 or 60 miles south of Baton Rouge, it's not only huge numbers of tugboats, but um there are these Panamax ships, the big ships that carry the grain overseas and stuff, and they're 900 feet long and they can't stop because the their draft is such that they're actually sliding over the mud in some areas. So there's no way any of that traffic is going to stop for you. They couldn't. And you're not particularly maneuverable. And I'm not particularly maneuverable. So what you had to do was look things over from a mile or two out and decide how to play the water. And, and fortunately, I, I discovered this thing that there's all these tie-up areas, barge tie-up areas along the shore. And a barge loaded can draw up to nine feet, which is more than I needed. Yeah. So I, I would sort of hug those barge cells along the way. And then I write about it at the end of the book, just before we got to New Orleans, when the traffic was just madness. I don't know how these guys do it every day. Yeah. A tugboat captain called ahead and he, he said, hey, a flatboat patience, uh, you can see my string of barges coming by you. Just There's a gray one in the middle. Get on that gray one just to starboard a little yeah. and I'll, I'll get you all the way down. You know. Yeah. So he was kind of my, he was like my blocking line, you know, yeah. And, uh, and and it was really great. And I never met. I never <clears throat> I was too busy at the time to like look at his. Actually, most of the boats are marked on the side, not on the front, on the back. So I never learned who he was, but uh, he really got me down there. So, so it was this wonderful riverboat journey because I had to kind of become sewn at the hip with these tugboat captains. Yeah, yeah. It, it really, it's a fascinating story. So in your previous book, uh, Oregon Trail, you and your brother, the wagon, you had Overland West. And one of the reviewers of that book wrote, uh, long before Oregon, Rinkerbug has convinced us that the best way to see America is from the seat of a covered wagon. Yeah. You think anybody's going to come away thinking that uh, the view from a flatboat going down the Ohio surpasses the wagon on the Westward Trail? Yeah, I, I think it's a toss-up, you know. And the thing, the only thing that I can, can compare it to is if you take a cross-country train trip, okay, the trains don't go necessarily where the interstate highways do. 
Right. And you get a whole different perspective on, wow, look at that. I, I didn't know America looked like that. You know, because if, if you drive the interstates, really, it's going to Connecticut is going to look the same as West Texas, yeah. you know, and pretty much. And so when you get on a river or you get on a covered wagon on the plains, you're seeing the country from a very different perspective. And one of the things I realized going down, which I write about is the reason America as a mass culture doesn't have a, an appreciation of the Rust Belt and all the people who were unemployed by what the steel industry and American basic industry went through in the 80s and 90s is you can't see the Rust Belt towns. They were all built on the waterfront of the Ohio and its tributaries and the Appalachian Mountains on both sides of the river, all the way down, protect you from seeing it. So if you're driving on Route 70 or whatever it is, transiting this country, you don't see the Rust Belt. You can't see that blight. Mm -hmm. But on a flat boat, you see that blight and you really get a very strong sense. And I write about Weirton, West Virginia and Paducah and some of these other cities, which a lot of them are reviving now. A lot of them are a lot of... Uh, Software companies and stuff, high tech companies are moving to those towns because they have cheap, cheap rents because they've kind of fallen on hard times. And, and there are more workers at good paying jobs in West Virginia putting up and maintaining wind turbines than there are who work in the coal industry. Yeah. So the economy is replenishing itself, but it takes time. And there's a lot of resentment among the workers until you get there. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to. See you at the book festival on August 20th. Uh, It'll be great. Life on the Mississippi, an epic American adventure comes out on the 9th of August. So we'll look forward to all the fabulous reviews for that. Um, Rinker, thanks for talking with us today. This was this was fun. It's uh, it's nice to chat with someone who's actually read the book carefully and thought about it. See you in August. Thanks so much. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party.